Welcome to the Be Consumed podcast with Pastor West Church, where we encourage you to be consumed by the truth of God's Word. Join us in chronologically reading through the Bible this year by visiting consumed.life. On Monday morning, I got a text message from Richie Hayward. He asked, uh, Wes, will you come over to my house and inspect it for mold? (laughs) Clearly, Richie is keeping up with his Bible reading and had just read in Leviticus 14, if the contamination in the walls of the house consists of green or red indentations that appear to be beneath the surface of the wall, the priest is to quarantine the house for seven days. (laughs) Do you know how thankful I am that our congregation does not actually need me to come to their house and inspect for mold or uh, skin diseases and um, all those different things. I've been asked to do a lot of challenging things as a pastor, but thankfully mold, mildew inspector, or determining the seriousness of skin issues, issues, that's not among my responsibilities. But it was the responsibility of the Levitical priests in ancient Israel. So welcome to the book of Leviticus in our consumed Bible reading plan. Now we're in week eight of our plan, and if you keep up, Uh, You'll read the last chapter of Leviticus tomorrow on Friday, and that will probably be enough motivation to keep some of you going strong because you are ready to finish Leviticus at the beginning of the week. And and let me just say this. I know this is posting later in the week, and I hate that. (laughs) I mean, it takes everything within me to even admit it. Um, I really did want to get it uploaded on Tuesday, but I had some South Carolina Baptist Convention responsibilities that took me to Nashville, Tennessee, the first half this week. And I thought I'd be able to set up a studio on the road. And that didn't happen. And, you know, I'll figure it out for next time, I'm sure. But thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for showing me grace as I try to show myself grace on this late, uh, on this late post. Anyways, we're in the book of Leviticus. And I'm reminded that Pastor Daniel Harold calls Leviticus that graveyard where read through the Bible and your plans go to die. Y'all, don't let it happen. Keep pressing on. If you've skipped a few days or find yourself dramatically behind, remember how we're doing this with the consumed plan this year. Give yourself grace. Pick up where we are today and move on. You might have time to go back and you know read those chapters you missed again, or you uh, can keep going next year and finish up those chapters that were left behind, whatever it is. Um, it's, it's not just about checking the boxes. It really is about dwelling regularly on the Word of God, reading it, thinking about it, and putting it into practice. Now, I will say it's not hard to recognize why Leviticus is a challenge to read. Uh, It's a book with detailed information um, about the law under the Old Covenant. It includes this code that you would expect to read if you worked for the Department of Health um, or that you would have to implement if you were with the FDA uh, and, and something you would have to maintain in the community. It's uncomfortable because it deals with health and hygiene matters, and we don't really enjoy talking about that, much less read about it in our daily devotions in the scriptures. And then there's these regulations for sacrifices and offerings that we don't understand. It just is not culturally relevant to us. So it feels antiquated. It feels very burdensome. So people grow disinterested, and the Bible reading plan dies in Leviticus. (laughs) But did you know that the book of Leviticus contains more speech by God than any other book of the Bible. Now, let me press pause there because you could retort my statement there by saying, Wes, every word of scripture is God's. And you would not be wrong. But I'm talking specifically here about words where God is the one speaking. So Leviticus contains more direct speech from God than any other book of the Bible. 
So even though Leviticus is the shortest book of the Torah or the Pentateuch, it's a significant part of the Pentateuch. In fact, it's placed right in the center of those first five books of the Bible, which is done so in order to give it prominence in the scriptures. Therefore, we should see Leviticus as a valuable book within the scriptures. One of the things that we're focusing on this year in our consumed Bible reading plan is the story of scripture. We're reading chronologically. Our hope is to uh, see the progression of the story of scripture uh, in a more obvious way so that we can hopefully identify where we fit into the grand story that God's telling. Now we've arrived at Leviticus. So how does this book fit within the story? And so I want us to review of how we got here. In Genesis, God creates the world, everything in it, mankind, his crowning creation. So he places Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden where they are able to dwell in the presence of God. That is not a thought we should gloss over. It's an incredible idea, the God of the universe walking with mankind in the cool of the day. And then one day the tempter comes along and the man and woman willfully rebel by eating the fruit from that forbidden tree And it's then that humanity falls. Sin enters the world. The curse of sin affects all of creation, but particularly man, woman, and their offspring. God judges the man, judges the woman, judges the serpent, and his curse even affects creation. Then he declares one day the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. This is a whisper about the Redeemer who was to come. And as part of God's judgment, the man and woman are expelled from Eden. Uh, The scriptures say they live east of the Garden of Eden. And uh, at this time, sin's curse just spreads out across the face of the earth. Wickedness increases, and that's when we arrive at that point where God chooses to destroy his uh, creation through this worldwide flood. Now, he preserves one family, keeps his promises here. Uh, preserves the family of Noah. Noah and his family are commanded to be fruitful and multiply following the flood, to populate the world. Well, they do. Humanity increases, um, spreads out across the face of the earth. Then God chooses a man to father a nation and people um, through which he would send the Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent and restore and repair everything broken by sin. And Abraham is that man. He's the man chosen to be the father of this nation and people. God makes a covenant with him, and that covenant is inherited or transferred to Abraham's son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob. And uh, Jacob is renamed Israel. He fathers 12 sons. They become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God preserves um, Jacob and his offspring. He preserves this lineage of Abraham, uh, particularly through a serious famine. And the way he does that is by sending Uh, Jacob's son, Joseph, to Egypt. Joseph is elevated there in Pharaoh's government. God uses Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and warn them of this coming famine. And then Joseph is selected to lead the nation, to prepare for the famine, and to preserve the nation of Egypt and others, uh, surrounding neighbors, which is actually a power play by Pharaoh. And that would include Jacob and his entire family. They move to Egypt, and they're there in order to be saved. The descendants of Jacob live in Egypt 490 years, but they become an oppressed people. They are treated as slaves by the new Pharaoh. Um, in fact, they're even, um, they even face population control. As the uh, Pharaoh orders the Egyptians um, and, and even the uh, Hebrew midwives to kill any sons born to the Jewish people. 
Well, of course, the people cry out to God. God hears their cries. And that gets us to the book of Exodus, or this is the beginning of Exodus. And this is where God calls a man, Moses. He's the one who's going to deliver his covenant people out of the hands of Pharaoh, out of the land of Egypt, give them the land that lead them into the land he promised them, um, let them be his covenant people there in the world. And it's dramatic display of God's power. Pharaoh's hand is forced. Moses leads the nation of probably about a million people out of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea, they head to Sinai, and it's there at Sinai that God uh, makes a covenant with Israel and instructs them on how to build a tabernacle so that he can dwell among them as they travel towards the promised land. And the book of Exodus ends with the completion of this tabernacle. Now, maybe you'll remember in my podcast last week, I said there's this dramatic tension at the end of the scriptures or at the end of Leviticus when uh, the, the tabernacle's completed, it's inspected, and then everybody's kind of watching, waiting. Will God actually come to dwell? Did they do it like they were supposed to in preparing this tabernacle? Um, could holy God actually dwell among sinful man? And there at the end of Exodus, I might have said Leviticus earlier. If I did, I'm sorry about that. But at the end of Exodus, God comes. The nation of Israel sees the glory of the Lord fill the place. And that is what brings us to Leviticus. And I want you to see in the story of Scripture Leviticus fits perfectly on the hills of Exodus because the tabernacle is inspected. It's been completed. God comes to 12. And now here in Leviticus, God gives instructions for priests, for Levites, and even the common people regarding the worship services that are to be conducted here at the tabernacle. Leviticus addresses how Israel was to live with God in their midst. And I want you to think about that. God's now in their neighborhood. What's the protocol for a common man to approach him or uh, someone who is to serve him in the tabernacle? How is he supposed to walk in? What do we do when one of our neighbors violates God's perfect law? What about when we collectively commit some grievous national sin before the holy God dwelling among us? What's the expectations of this holy, awesome God for how we are to worship and fellowship with him? Leviticus answers those questions. That's how it fits here. It provides practical guidelines for living with God under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. This is like a neighborhood covenant, right? It's, it's how they're to dwell there in the land where Mos, uh, God dwells. Now, I want you to remember, um, when Adam and Eve um, were expelled from the garden, God placed there at the entrance to the garden angelic warriors to prevent man and woman from re-entering the pre uh, presence of God. Sinful man not only unwelcome but would be annihilated if they came into God's presence. But now God's going to once again dwell among his people? How's he going to do that? What we discover is there is a path for sinful humans to dwell near to holy God, to draw near to him. Um, and the way for this to happen is through sacrifices, cleanliness, and holiness. That's what Leviticus provides to the people of Israel, a way to safely dwell with God. Now, if Leviticus is removed from the equation, um, Israel's just another tribe of people among other groups of people living in Canaan. But Israel is to be separate and distinct, a people fit to have God live among them. So fast forward a few thousand years, the question that you and I are reading as uh, are, are wrestling with as we're reading this text is, so what? Now, it's not to say that learning history and being aware of where we came from is not important information. But we are not accountable to these laws or this protocol for sacrifices. It's not to say the law got abolished 
When Jesus came, he said himself, he didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. Rather, the new covenant changed our relationship to the law. We're, we're not found clean or righteous based on our own ability to uphold um, the law or properly offer sacrifice. We're, we're clean. We're righteous based on our faith in Jesus's ultimate sacrifice um, for our sin on Calvary. But here we have these regulations, these instructions for sacrifices in Leviticus that Christians are not to offer. In fact, Dorsey says virtually all the regulations, certainly 95% are culturally restricted, geographically limited, cultically and politically specific, and as a result are inapplicable to, and he says, in fact, unfulfillable by Christians living throughout the world today. So if that's the case, why are we spending so much time reading up on this? What are we to practically take away from it? Well, I do want to remind you that even whenever we struggle to personally draw practical application from a text, that does not mean it is not important or useful. Uh, Remember, the scriptures remind us, Paul tells us, he settles the story here, um, that um, every piece of scripture is God-breathed and useful. So even the bulky Old Testament law, even these complex guidelines for the sacrifices, God-breathed, useful. Not only that, there's this beautiful psalm we read a few weeks ago, Psalm 19, um, that says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Verse 8, the precepts of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, sweeter also than honey. These words in Psalm 19, they're about the law. They're about the law that we read in these first five books of the Bible. So the psalmist's song here gives voice to our conviction that God's law, his precepts, his commands, they're perfect, they're pure, they're life-giving, they're desirable and sweet. So if we actually believe that's true, we can't skip over Leviticus. We can't skip over any part of the Torah. We must read, think about it, put into practice the principles, I would say, contained in the Torah. So, How can the law help us today if we're not accountable to the law? Martin Luther describes that one of the uses of the law is usus pedagogicus. The law is a schoolmaster convicting us of sin and driving us to Jesus. The law makes it clear that we are an unclean people, that we will never be able to clean ourselves up enough to dwell unhindered with God. Jack McCathern said to me this past week, Wes, I'm so glad for Jesus because I would never be able to clean the walls of my house enough to live up to the demand of the Levitical law. Well, that's the point. We're unclean, we're sinful, we're desperate for somebody to atone for our sins. And Leviticus makes it so clear that our sins demand atonement. And there's a protocol for what atonement should look like, an acceptable sacrifice, a transfer of guilt, and a declaration of forgiveness. In fact, I would say if we didn't have Leviticus, we would struggle to understand atonement. And um, that's how it's so practical and helpful for the Christian today. John Hartley has written, Leviticus provides an understanding of holiness, sin, atonement. It's the essential elements of the divine human relationship. Atonement for sins is a critical part of the gospel message. So we need the background provided to us in the book of Leviticus in order to really understand what happens at Calvary. It's not that we have a clear understanding of... um, when to bring a pigeon or a bull or how to properly prepare the animal or what to do with the blood after you sacrifice it or how the fire should work. We just need to know that God has placed demands upon his people and that he outlines how redemption is accomplished. But ultimately, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
annulled many of those Old Testament sacrificial laws because he's the perfect Lamb of God and he takes away the sins of the world. All right, that's a lot. I'm not even sure it made complete sense. Um, Oh, well, there's always next week, but I I really do hope you'll uh, keep up. Of course, I said we'll finish Leviticus and then we'll move right into um, the book of Numbers. So now the challenge is going to become reading a lot of details about a census, okay? Uh, But this coming Sunday, I'm going to preach a message entitled Atonement from Leviticus 16. Uh, Such a critical passage of Scripture in the Pentateuch. So I hope you'll join me for Bible study and worship at Columbia's First Baptist Church each Sunday. In the meantime, read, think about, put into practice the truth of God's Word. Thank you for listening to the Be Consumed podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church, Columbia, South Carolina. For more information and to join us in reading through the Bible this year, please visit us at consumed.life.